0: Hello and welcome to the second instalment of the Family Law podcast from Pump Court Chambers. I'm Mark Ablett and for the next 25 minutes or so you'll be listening to me and the dulcet tones of my guest and co-host Tara Lyons. Tara was called to the bar in 2005 And is a specialist financial remedies and contentious probate practitioner. She is ranked as a leading individual in chambers and partners and the legal 500 and sits as a private FDR judge, a service which I'm sure we will continue to see gain in popularity even after lockdown ends. Uh, Well after all that I certainly feel a bit inadequate. Tara how are you?
1: Thank you Mark for that very kind introduction. I am very well. Um, good afternoon, uh, and I'm honoured to be on your second pod- podcast, so thank you, you very much.
0: excited about the new logo that we've we've uploaded since the first episode. It's
1: very smart.
0: I think it's very jazzy.
1: It's very smart. Who knew that barristers could also do such excellent branding?
0: Who knew? Who knew indeed? So Tara is joining me today to discuss offers, tactics and timings, Uh, This is, of course, particularly pertinent at the moment. Changes to the family rules came into effect at the beginning of this month, and we now have to make open offers 21 days after the FDR. I should say at this stage that this does does not override the existing direction to serve open offers 14 and 7 days before the final hearing. The other recent change, as I'm sure listeners will be aware of, is the revised Form H, which now includes cost estimates up through FDR and final hearing. And these changes also need to be seen in the context of the relatively new changes to practice direction 28A, in particular paragraph 4.4, which identifies that the court will take a broad view of conduct for the purposes of costs discretion and will generally conclude that to refuse openly to negotiate reasonably and responsibly will amount to conduct, in respect of which the court will consider making an order for costs, and that can even be in a needs case. So encouraging earlier open offers, it is clear that lawmakers are pushing negotiations into the open sphere, and we will be discussing amongst other things what that means for your approach to proceedings. So Tara, perhaps firstly, let's talk about what the actual point is in making an open offer versus a without prejudice offer.
1: Well, Mark, um, there are a number of points. Um, First and foremost, it is a way of Um, exerting pressure on the other side uh, to start um, thinking about uh, how they are um, uh, negotiating and uh, attempting to reach a settlement in this and that's because it is only open offers that can sound in cost consequences and we've had that added push um, from uh, part uh, FPR 28A 4.4 that you've just alluded to, um, which um, is and makes clear that there could be cost consequences if you don't negotiate reasonably and responsibly, uh, openly. Now, what reasonably and responsibly means uh, is a different issue, and I think that's going to uh, come under close scrutiny for the courts, but. The answer to your question is first and foremost, uh, there's a cost reason uh, to negotiate openly. There are a number of other reasons um, which um, uh, give an advantage for for, uh, putting forward an open offer. Um, And that's this. As well as the cost protection, it will also make you look pretty reasonable if you've made a fair open offer early in proceedings and that will give you an enormous advantage at the final hearing um, there's also uh, an, an, an advantage if you pitch the open offer correctly so for example um, if you uh, make an early open offer where there are more capital resources available um, and you offer Um, the wife let's say 55% of a net asset pot of 600,000 and then by the time it gets to final hearing that pot has been depleted by 100,000 then for the wife to uh, persuade the court uh, that, that they should have any cost protection, they're going to have to show uh, that uh, they're going to have to achieve more than 66% of the final hearing rather than that initial 55%. So it's a really persuasive argument, isn't it, for making an early open offer.
0: Yeah, Um, absolutely. And I suppose it's, like you say, it's it's forcing the other side into making a decision uh, earlier than perhaps they were expecting to. and, And tactically, that has to be a good thing. And um, in terms of, so there's, there's a cost of consequences, but in terms of timing for an open offer, you've mentioned the benefits of an early open offer, what are your views in terms of when we ought to be making these offers then?
1: Well I think um, you've got to think about them in the three principal stages. Um, the first point to remember is open making an open offer does not necessarily mean making a complete offer on all the issues between the parties it is perfectly open to to you to consider making an issue specific offer so i think it would be good practice to always consider is there a point early on whether just before the first appointment or or uh, soon afterwards where you could look to make some sort of issue specific offer at that point and um, the next key stage where I, I think you've really got to think about making an open offer is just before the FDR and my view is that if you are able to make sensible without prejudice offers, then um, there would be no reason that you couldn't convert some of those uh, into an open offer uh, because no doubt you'd consider that you had all the relevant disclosure and information available to do that. And then the next point um, and, uh, is after the FDR, and that's been reinforced with these new rule changes.
0: So in terms of just before the FDR then the idea i guess is that you're saying this is my open position this is what i'm going to go to trial on this is what you stand to lose if you are not sensible and you don't settle and you're sort of you're hedging your bets on getting an indication in line with at least your without prejudice offer.
1: Yeah exactly right. And i mean how ma- how many cases can you think of mark where where in fact the open offer that is put forward is pretty much in line with your sort of starting position for fdr in any event i mean the key thing to remember is with open offers they have to be arguable so don't ever include that point that you might throw in for, for fdr purposes that really you know you're going to lose because that will weaken your position at any sort of final hearing um, but 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 ultimately, um, as far as I'm concerned, there's no reason that you shouldn't be making an open offer uh, at the same time that you might make a without prejudice offer. And if there are any doubts, for example, if you're worried that there's going to be a change of circumstance, let's say one of the parties is moving accommodation, that's going to have an effect on their housing need. You can always state that the offer is made on a certain basis.
0: So. I suppose the, the consideration and we will we both see in our practice, one of the obstacles to settlement that's described is is non-disclosure. And I, I was talking about this with Annie Ward last time. Hmm. So can you really can you be making an open offer when disclosure is potentially incomplete? So you're getting to an FDR and, and there are still question marks over one size disclosure, doesn't that slightly weaken your hand if you're prepared to settle without knowing everything?
1: Well I I think as with all things, it is, um, it it depends, doesn't it? It it depends firstly on um, the sort of level of non-disclosure that we're talking about and what your real concerns might be. If um, you're concerned that actually the husband might uh, have an additional account that he opened post-separation, and you know that he's a P-A-Y-E earner, and the, the, the sorts of likely sums he, he might have earned and might have been able to squirrel away, and, and you're convinced they're not very high, then uh, after a long marriage of let's say, 30 years, you know that the end result is going to probably be pretty uh, 50-50 on the house. Well, in those circumstances, there's no issue with you making that early open offer. If, however... Uh, this is really a maintenance case and you haven't got full disclosure of the husband's income, well, of course, you're going to be much, much more careful and you probably won't make an open offer. But that's not to mean that you couldn't make some open statements, for example, that this would be an ongoing maintenance award and that quantum would be dependent on the disclosure that that he would put forward.
0: Right. Uh, I mean, I suppose the other, the other thing that we have to bear in mind and this is enforced at the moment by the new rule changes that we have to make this this offer after FDR but of course we're making that offer before we see section 25 statements and one likes to think that that is not a completely pointless exercise because it generally costs our clients quite a lot of money so I mean, what are your views on on that that we're effectively being asked to settle before seeing what's supposed to be the substance of the case either way
1: well, I think um, that that particular point you've raised actually informed a, a lot of the debate when uh, considering this rule change because it's exactly that. What's the point of making these these open offers uh, before uh, statements are are, are produced? Um, I suppose i I suppose there are two things. First of all. Although we've spoken about open offers being made 21 days post-FDR, in fact, the rules give you a get-out clause. So uh, Part um, 9.27a says, where at an FDR appointment the court does not make an appropriate consent order or direct, direct a further FDR appointment, each party must file with the court and serve on, each other, on the other party in an open proposal of settlement, by such date as support directs or where no direction is given under sub paragraph A within 21 days after the date of FDR appointment. So it is always open for, for you if you have real concerns that there's going to be some new information in the section 25 statements um, to say, well, actually, we don't think this is a case in which it would be appropriate for, for open offers to be made soon after the FDR. And indeed, The case that i the fdr i dealt with last week there was exactly that submission to the judge who in that particular case felt no it wasn't appropriate um but of course um if actually section 25 statements have been ordered not because it's a particularly contentious case, but because it would be far quicker to have uh, the evidence in statements and we might see some sort of updating information in the statements, then I don't see that you're going to particularly prejudice your client in making an open offer based on the information you have at that time.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, like you say, it's, it's gotta be case specific, hasn't it? Um... Moving on slightly, we're talking obviously about open offers only. The other big area on offers is without prejudice. Mm. I suppose the big question is really how do your tactics differ and the content differ when it comes to making without prejudice offer versus open offer?
1: Well, my practice has always been that when it comes to open offers, you be best advised to keep those offers as succinct and bullet point as possible. Because if you go into a detailed explanation as to the division you're you're seeking or the order that you're seeking, then it becomes very easy at a final hearing to effectively erode those points and that offer by uh, challenging the individual points. Um, So uh, for for open offers I think it's best to keep it as uh, brief as possible uh, and as I say a sort of bullet point approach. For without prejudice offers my approach is always to give much more detail because it's the reasoning then that might persuade uh, the other party that actually you know it's for these reasons they should accept the offer. it's always a good idea following an FDR if you can to make your sort of best without prejudice offer at the same time as the likely open offer that you're going to be making uh, at the final hearing or the open offer un- under the new rules. And that's because it, it, it shows in stark contrast what the the other party might get at final hearing or the best offer which, which you're offering at that point and i find that is often an incentive particularly after a um a, a day in court a difficult day in court as an fdr to just give the other side that final push to, to get to your level and agree a settlement so i think that that that's tactically an important way to think about the juxtaposition of the two offers together.
0: Uh, and just to complicate the plot, of course, we know that cold bankrupts were uh, got rid of in 2010 with the rule to mm. save for certain applications, one of which um, is maintenance pending suit and, and legal service provision order applications. I suppose, there, where, where it's without prejudice, savers to cost, in terms of mm. tactics, you're going to be more in line with the open offer tactics than the mm. uh, prejudice tactics, aren't you?
1: Yeah exactly right and i mean one of the differences though when when you're thinking about the the calderbank um rules that apply in that situation is um you know the the aim is to beat your offer now with the open offers it's not really clear what our aim is because of this new rule um at 4.4 which is to to offer reasonably uh, and sensibly you know, what is that? Is that beating uh, your offer at court? Is that beating the other side's offer at court? Um, And I think that that's going to make things uh, much more complicated. But you're right. It it is important um, to uh, be a bit more tactical about your WP offers in those discrete applications because of the Cold Bank rules.
0: But let's just say, moving on then, to just to to touch on the, the, the new changes, like you say, mm. there's no. Presumably, we're going to be waiting for that first juicy High Court authority. Hopefully, a dynamic Mr Justice Mostyn judgment, where reasonableness is, or so some definition, is ventured towards reasonableness. Yes. We're just arguing in a vacuum at the moment, aren't we? Yeah,
1: we are, and um. It- I, I think the thing is in our search for a definition of reasonableness or responsible, um, we we are I, I think this is going to be become one of those areas of, of, of law, another area of law in family proceedings, which is discretionary. And it is it's 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 going to be very difficult to advise clients. And there is also the risk that it will encourage parties to to take it to final hearing in the hope that they'll achieve a cost. order.
0: I want to come to that in a moment but but firstly just to sort of round off on offers themselves uh, in terms Mm. of timings what we haven't talked about is how long your offer should be open for and of course that depends on when you make it but perhaps the best example is this post FDR offer that we now have to make and say it is 21 days after the FDR you've got section 25 statements coming at some point after that how long would you be saying that that offer should stay open for particularly when you then if you're the applicant have to make your another open offer 14 days before the final hearing
1: well I think certainly a re I think you should be making time-limited offers and I don't think uh, that um, well, particularly because there is that opportunity, well, you're required to make uh, an additional offer prior to to the final hearing. Um, but you have to gauge that, don't you, on when your, your side is going to start incurring uh, many more costs, which would make your, your offer unattractive. And I would have thought that a reasonable period would be something like 14 days. However, you know, you can always gauge it by the next step. So if actually you've got to start work on your Section 25 statement, you can use that as the marker and I I don't think you'd be criticised for for, um, being unreasonable.
0: I suppose we've got to, we'll, we'll almost be led by the court listings which, let's be honest, we're not going to be optimistic about when we get our final hearings after FDR at the moment. Um, so just then to touch on what on what you what you mentioned earlier, mm. in terms of the point of these revised timings, the the four point four of PD twenty eight A, seem to be mm. they want to encourage people to negotiate settle earlier. Do you think that's actually going to happen?
1: Well, I think there's going to be um, I think in, in in the majority of cases. It is going to mean that many more open offers are made earlier. I think, however, that it it will be possible um, uh, to use the loophole that I I described earlier, uh, which is to ask the court for more time. Um, But I think what we will find is that the offers that that come out will will be uh, far more conditional. Um, And, uh, you know, whether that will make more cases settle earlier, we'll we'll have to see because of the cost implications.
0: There is that risk, isn't it, that that, that if someone thinks that they've actually got a a shot at getting a costs order versus the usual no order, that it almost might encourage them to go to final hearing, depending on the stage of proceeding.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think that's an unfortunate byproduct because it's very clear what the intention was with this and you know and I think that is intention is right because um, there are so many cases where people delay and don't try and narrow the issues and and make an open offer at the very last minute you know a couple of days before the final hearing at at huge cost to the parties.
0: Yeah and I think it's important isn't it that we're not talking about high court or only high court high value cases here the practice direction specifically says needs cases so these are tactics that need to be borne in mind regardless of what the net assets are.
1: Yeah I think it's going to bring about a um, change in mindset for family practitioners um, and will encourage, I think it's going to, to mean that people hopefully will have a better better handle of their cases um, and that should narrow the issues because we'll see far earlier what actually there is to, to fight about on an open basis.
0: Well thanks for that Tara, I think that's probably as much as we've got time for. Uh, I'm enough of a law nerd to say that I really enjoyed that chat Uh, I I hope our listeners found it entertaining and useful or will find it entertaining and useful. So it seems that the lawmakers want us to be negotiating more openly. There is a suggestion that failure to do so will be punished by costs, even in needs cases. And so it does make thinking about tactics all the more important, regardless of what the net asset figure is. It, of course, also brings us back to what is seemingly an ongoing conversation around whether Calderbank offers should be revived. But that really is a discussion for another day. Coming soon on the Family Law Podcast, I'll be joined by Paul Mertens of Pump Court Chambers to talk about special advocates and family proceedings, and by James Byrne and Alice Scott, also of Pump Court, to talk about the interplay between possession proceedings under practice direction 51Z of the CPR and enforcement of financial remedy orders. Tara will also be hosting bite-sized guides to those thorny applications you know about but rarely have to make, and more on that coming soon. Otherwise, thank you very much, Tara. Uh, Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Um, As ever, do send any topic suggestions our way. My email is m.ablett at pumpcourtchambers.com. This has been the Family Law Podcast. Goodbye.